Welcome to the Macmillan Report. I'm Marilyn Wilkes, your host, and today our guest is Professor Alex Stone-Sweet, the Leitner Professor of Law, Politics, and International Studies. Professor Stone-Sweet's interests are comparative and international politics and law and European integration. His research focuses on how rule systems emerge and evolve over time and with what consequences for society. Most of his published work approaches this question by looking at how new legal systems develop. Today we'll be talking about his newest book called A Europe of Rights, The Impact of European Convention on Human Rights on National Legal Systems. Welcome Professor Stone Sweet. Thank you. Most of your research focuses on new legal systems and how they evolve. Why are you interested in that? Well, my work is a little bit peculiar in, in that most uh, legal scholars and most political scientists study uh, full-blown legal systems or, or legal systems that have already uh, matured and are already functioning, usually in a successful way. And I'm interested in brand new legal systems because we don't know if they're going to be successes or failures. And because when people uh, build new legal systems, they're constituting new political communities or new systems of, of governance. And when older, pre-existing political communities redesign their legal systems, get new constitutions or set up new court systems, they're redefining who they are uh, politically and as a community. So I'm interested in, in what are the, what are the um, uh, bases for uh, when legal systems will be successful and when they'll, be, when they'll fail and what their functions uh, are. And it turns out that uh, legal systems and judges and courts in particular are critical to how uh, human communities are able to reproduce themselves over time, how, how societies are able to integrate over time as circumstances change, how economies are able to grow and integrate. So for the last 10 years or 12 years now, I've been working a lot on, the Euro on European integration and showing uh, how important it has been for the, uh, how important it has been for integration. Uh, particularly social and economic integration, uh, how people interact across borders in Europe, uh, how important the legal system has been uh, for the success of that project. On the contrary, in places like Africa and in Latin America, integration projects haven't worked, and that's partly because uh, the legal systems have been so ineffective. Mm -hmm. So what new legal systems are you most interested in today? Well, right now I'm developing a project on uh, private transnational uh, governance and I'm interested in how multinational corporations and their lawyers are building a new, a new legal system, but a private legal system that doesn't rely on the state uh, to manage their commercial relationships. So uh, almost all contracts now, be, uh, well, when Nike has to make uh, tennis shoes in Malaysia or Vietnam, they have to have a contract with somebody that they're, uh, that they're, that's going to make those shoes in those countries. And uh, most of these kinds of contracts now specify uh, uh, arbitration to deal with contractual disputes rather than court systems. And so through these arbitration clauses and contracts, private companies are building a kind of private court system for transnational commerce. And I find that uh, a fascinating because, it, once again, it allows us to look at the dynamics of how new legal systems or new court systems evolve. Furthermore, in contracting, uh, in, when multinational corporations and their lawyers build new contracts, often today, because they're put, put under pressure uh, uh, from uh, NGOs and interest groups that are interested in environmental protection or in human rights, uh, uh, human rights records, 
they want these corporations to put directly into the contracts human rights standards, workplace conditions, environmental protection standards, and so on. And we find that corporations are doing this more and more, which then raises the question of how these standards, how these codes of conduct, which are, again, are purely private, they're not obligatory, are nonetheless uh, being monitored and enforced. And then companies have multiple ways of, of monitoring and enforcing them. They can do it themselves. Uh, they can hire an accounting firm like uh, Cooper Librand or these or Anderson, these huge uh, accounting firms who used to just used to just audit the contract from its financial, you know, from its financial uh, aspects. And nowadays, they do what's called social accounting. They look in, or environmental accounting. And they look to see how the contractual relationship is doing, is faring on the human rights side or on the environmental protection side. Or a third way that they can do it, which is my preferred way, is that they can ask a third party, a neutral third party, uh, to go uh, and go directly to, say, Vietnam or Malaysia and look and see how the workplace is actually being managed and then certify that workplace. Mm -hmm. uh, and, the most and the most important, uh, or one of the most interesting organizations that does this is called Social Accounting International, and it's, and it's funded by labor and by corporations themselves and by uh, NGOs and interest groups who are interested in human rights and environmental protection. Uh, and uh, so I find this fascinating because it's a, it's a kind of a transnational legal system that's purely private. It doesn't rely on the state, but it is increasingly important for managing global, uh, global economic activity. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your new book and what is the European Convention? Well, the European Convention on Human Rights was signed by 10 states in 1953 and it entered into force uh, in 1953. Today it covers uh, 47 countries in Europe uh, and 850 million people. So it's, the, it's also the most active and most effective international human rights regime in the world. Last year it received 50,000, more than 50,000 petitions from individuals uh, directly to it uh, and um, it issued more than 1,500 rulings. It's the most single most active court in the world. To give you, to give you a, compar a comparison, the Supreme Court of the United States issues fewer than 100 rulings per year. This court, this transnational court, made up of 47 judges from 47 different countries, issues, issues 1,500 plus decisions a year on the merits. Wow, that's fascinating. That's um, quite a, a bit of um, research to follow, I would imagine. Yes, the new book, the new book uh, traces, attempts to trace the impact of the European Convention on Human Rights and how it's interpreted by the European Court of Human Rights on the member states themselves, on the nation states themselves, the contracting states. So instead of a focus where we look just at the European Court of Human Rights and what it does and how it interprets rights, we care about how legislators and uh, governments, uh, administrators, uh, and judges uh, receive or uh, adapt to or coordinate their activities, their decision making to the, uh, to the rights that are in the convention as they're interpreted over time by the European Convention on Human Rights. Now the convention completely changed in 1998 when the states decided uh, to uh, make uh, the jurisdiction of the European court compulsory. By that, it means that, by that it means that states can't block applications that come from their own citizens to the court against them from going to court. Uh, and they also made uh, uh, a right of all citizens, or for that matter, all uh, inhabitants of, the, of convention territory, that is all 47 countries, uh, they gave an absolute right to individuals to petition directly the court uh, when they believe that their rights have been violated 
after remedies have been exhausted in those countries. So in 1998, then, the court really became a kind of transnational constitutional court for human rights uh, in, in the convention. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how much impact has the European Convention on Human Rights actually had on national political and legal systems? Well, in the last 20 years, and particularly, uh, and this has accelerated in the last decades, especially since the changes in 1998 that I just mentioned, the court's impact has become really profound across across all of the contracting states. Uh, of course, some states have been influenced more than others. Those states that have very, very, very good uh, human rights records with good systems of constitutional justice, with constitutional courts that protect rights uh, fairly comprehensively in the national legal order, such as Germany and Ireland and Spain, uh, they haven't been impacted as much. The convention doesn't fill those gaps. But in other systems, uh, where they don't have con they don't have a bill of rights in their constitution and most most countries actually in the old western europe didn't have bill of rights in their in their countries yeah. countries and they didn't have judicial review they, they didn't have judges didn't have the power of uh striking down or annulling as unconstitutional uh uh statutes that emanated out of the parliament parliaments were sovereign parliaments were were supreme and the the acts that they produced legislation statutes were supreme in the legal order uh, in those systems, there's been profound change because the convention uh, now uh, functions as a kind of surrogate bill of rights. It becomes the bill of rights. And to the extent to which judges can directly enforce them is the extent to which the convention starts to have direct effect in the legal system. In most systems now, since 1998, in most systems, there's only a couple of exceptions, the in convention has been incorporated into the national legal system at a level that's above statutes above legislation, but below that of the Constitution. And what that means is that individuals can plead uh, rights from the convention directly in national courts against their own national government, and judges are expected to enforce them even against statutes. So again, what this means is that the, the way that the convention has developed and the way that the, the, um, the, way that the, the convention has been incorporated into national law, that is with that super legislative status, uh, means that uh, means that um, the convention uh, functions as a kind of constitutional bill of rights for all those states that didn't have it before. So your book shows that the convention system is presently at a critical juncture. What are the major challenges facing the European Court on human rights today? Well, in 1990, the convention uh, system added 24 new states with 450 million people. This is called Eastern enlargement. This happened after uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the disintegration of the Soviet bloc. All of those countries east of Western Europe, east of the European Community and the European Union, uh, uh, drafted new constitutions, were engaged in democratization efforts, and the Council of Europe, uh, which is the, which, uh, which the convention is a part, decided the political bodies, the states in the Council of Europe, the Western European states, decided that it was important to bring Eastern Europe into the Western European, into the convention system, mm -hmm. in order to uh, bolster democratization efforts, in order to give them, to, 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 uh, to uh, provide a bulwark uh, for, for uh, these new systems so that they wouldn't slide back into authoritarianism and so on. And one of the problems has been that some of these states were not really ready to be brought into this new system. Uh, and this is certainly the case of the Ukraine, Georgia, Russia, Turkey, uh, Romania, Bulgaria. Today, uh, 
more than half of all of the 50,000 petitions that come in each year come from only four states, Romania, Ukraine, Russia, and Turkey. In these places, you have massive human rights failures of a systemic kind. You have judges who are underpaid or corrupt. You have judges who are afraid uh, of political reprisals if they do their job correctly. You have governments who actually censor the mail, and if they see mail uh, you could, I should, I should back up, individuals can apply directly to the convention through a letter. Basically, it's incredibly simple and costless to register one of these complaints. And some governments, including Russia, have actually uh, stopped mail going out of Russia to the Strasbourg Court, the European Court of Human Rights, because they don't want the European Court to handle some of these kinds of complaints. And a further problem is, as you, as you know, if you've been watching the news, Russia's, Russia, for instance, is engaged in some, is engaged in, uh, in virtual civil war in Chechnya, and it's, and it's been engaged in, in some military action in Georgia. Uh, all, of those, all of those actions will, will generate many complaints and petitions. They'll all come to the court. And unlike the American Supreme Court, which has a political questions doctrine and has a set of other doctrines that, def that says that when we're dealing with foreign policy and war issues, think of Guantanamo, we defer to our president. We don't, we don't really want to apply the same standards uh, that we might apply to government action within America to what the government does outside of America. Well, the European Court of Human Rights never does that. There is no political question. Every question uh, needs to, uh, according to the court, every question needs to be examined and dealt with on its, on its merits according to, the, according to the law and according to the convention. And that means that no matter how political and how controversial a question is that comes up in any of these 47 states, the court is almost for certainly to get it. At the same time, the court knows that when it's dealing with some of these uh, cases, some of these difficult uh, cases of countries that are unable to protect human rights uh, on their own, through their own domestic uh, pr processes, through their own domestic institutions, they know that, that their uh, capacity to actually impact on them is, is quite low. Mm -hmm. so, the court can continually handle hundreds and hundreds, sometimes thousands of the same kinds of complaints uh, and give direction to the Russian authorities or the Ukrainian authorities of how they need to change their system in order to stop generating these kinds of complaints. But they also can, can know that the, that the Russians and the Ukrainians are unlikely to succeed at reforming their own institutions. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you for sharing some of your work with us today. For more information on Professor Stone Sweet his research and of course his newest book, please visit our website at yale.edu backslash Macmillan Report. Be sure to join us again for another episode of the Macmillan Report made possible through funding from the Whitney and Betty Macmillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale. Thank you Thanks very much.